0: Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHCFM fm on the campus of Emory & Henry College in Emory, Virginia. And I'm doing a series on uh, the future of faith or the future of religion. Where is religion going? Where is it headed? Uh, We've uh, spoken with a number of important thinkers, including Phyllis Tickle, Diana Butler-Bass, David Kinnaman, Carol Howard Merritt, David Galston, Brian McLaren, and Jerry DeWitt, and yet to come in this series, uh, Harvey Cox, Robin Myers, Marcus Borg, and many others that we will be speaking with thinkers about the future of religion from a variety of perspectives, from evangelical to progressive uh, believers, as well as non-believers, because we all have a stake in what religion is coming to. Last week on this program, I spoke with Daniel Dennett, philosopher at Tufts University, and he suggested that the dinosaurs really, in a sense, have not died out. Uh, that traits of them continue in what we in what we think of as in in modern birds. In the same way, he suggested that religions too evolve; that they may lose some of the traits that they had previously and adopt some new ones. And one of the traits that's being lost by some of them is the supernaturalism. And I'm finding this too as religion evolves. Uh, regardless of perspective, people just simply don't really talk a whole lot about the complexities of theology, mostly in all of these thinkers that I've been speaking with uh, on this program about the future of faith, they talk about faith from a perspective of community and things to be done. And perhaps this is the way religion is evolving, in which uh, God is less seen as a metaphysical supernatural being and and more seen as in the work of human beings working for justice and and community and and love and and decency and morality. An evolution away from metaphysics and supernaturalism to more of human community. and Maybe that's an evolution uh, to foster, says Professor Dennett. We continue this conversation with Daniel Dennett here on Religion for Life. Daniel Dennett along with Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris and the late Christopher Hitchens have been called the new atheists they all came out with books about atheism and religion right around the same time from a number of perspectives. Dr. Dennett is on uh the uh, on Skype with me from his home in North Andover, Massachusetts. Welcome Dr. Dennett to Religion for Life.
1: I'm glad to be with you, John.
0: Well, you've you've witnessed of course, the dark side of religion, many of us uh, see it as anti-science and tribal and, well, superstitious. But do you also see some good things in religion, too. Can you imagine a future of religion that's more benign, uh, religion perhaps beyond uh, supernaturalism, beyond uh, uh, afterlife to a religion of this life? What are some possible futures?
1: Absolutely, I can imagine it. And I think uh, that is close to being a moral obligation to try to imagine— um, what religion can be like in the future and how we could help to make it that way. And this is, a, I've been thinking a lot about that in the last few days. I, I realized on the one hand, I wanted the communities that have formed to persist in their supporting role for each other uh, in providing the infrastructure for good works and providing the uh, emotional support and identification that really we all need in life uh... we need our friends we need our families we need our homes and some people are shortchanged in those departments and it's important that there be a place where they can go and be a member and be and be accepted into full membership and i'm but i've been wondering how this is going to be possible when we uh, launder out the, the preposterous supernatural sides of religion. And uh, I've currently also been worrying about another problem, and all of a sudden I thought, oh, great, these two fit together just wonderfully and solve each other. The other problem I've been worrying about is uh, the problem about what would we do as a society if our high-tech infrastructure broke down. If the power grid went down and if the internet went down. Mm -hmm. If you ask, do hospitals, schools, banks, supermarkets, gas stations, do they have any plan for what to do if the internet goes down? Would the television news stations have any plan for how they could do their work if the internet went down or if the power grid went down? But let's just talk about, about the internet going down. We've become so dependent so quickly on this that we're losing our uh, ability to cope in a world where we don't have that as, as, as our crutch at our elbow. And I dare say, if you recall, the first 48 hours um, after 9-11, what struck me at the time and that chilled me to my marrow was that the whole nation was just a few steps away from utter panic. Panic attacks bring out the worst in people. And if you're a scuba diver, you learn when you become a scuba diver that panic is your worst enemy. Uh, you will forget everything you know. You will forget to be decent. You may end up killing your best friend by trying to wrestle his... his uh, air air supply away from him because you currently don't have yours. Uh, we we want to we quell panic and, and soak it up and, and stop it whenever we can. So we need what we might call, we need panic suppressors, we need circuit breakers around the world, around the country, to, to give people an alternative to panic if anything like this ever happened. And then I got thinking about lifeboats. Remember when you when you go on a cruise, uh, a Carnival cruise or anything like that, you you're, you hardly get on the the boat. The boat may not have even left the dock, and they do a lifeboat drill. And you put on your life jacket, you stand around docilely, and you learn the rules and you learn where the lifeboats are. And they go This is very wise of the companies to do this. Their insurance, of course, requires it. But because if they didn't do that, if there ever was a catastrophe, if there ever was a sinking, uh, a lot more lives would be saved. The situation would be a lot better if you'd had that lifeboat drill. So I began thinking about, well, how about if churches became the obvious choice to be the post-technology lifeboats of our country, where they would, people would learn in them, they would teach each other and they would develop how to deal with their local community problems with how are we going to make sure that people are okay if if this uh, technological catastrophe were to strike where would people go to get um, information to get help to get shelter and of course churches already play those roles in, in hurricanes and storms and floods so, so they're, they're the natural place to create uh, organizations that, that take on the task of developing the know-how of doing this right. And the more I've thought about this, the more I've thought that uh, I don't know what the best rules are. We, we need, a, a, you, know, a Boy Scout manual for how to deal. With, with this crisis, and one of the first things that the churches could participate in is a great town meeting, a great consensus builder to figure out how, how we ought to handle it if this happens, uh, both locally and, and nationally. Uh, I could see this creating an amazing public spirited curriculum for children uh, in Sunday school, for parents, for youth, for adults, contributing their skills and their knowledge and creating a network that would be there uh, to be reliable for people when that panic struck, when things went south.
0: We have all of the infrastructure, or that is churches, or religious uh, settings in place, and, and a long history of, of even before internet, of... of um of people meeting together uh, as, a, in a sense, as in a, in a community forum.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think I think it's it's uh, uh, churches already have uh, they have both the reputation and they deserve the reputation of being a place you can go to get this basic level of help and information and support. And uh, so the idea of them grooming themselves, training themselves, building themselves up as, as local lifeboats uh, uh, against a day which with, all, with any luck will never happen. But in the meantime, we will have had our lifeboat drills. We'll know we can, we can sleep easier at night because we know that if uh, malicious spirits somehow manage to shut things down, It's not going to be just utter chaos. It's not going to be uh, uh, a crazy world of vigilantes and uh, desperados. We will join hands and bring out the best in each other. I think that would be an entirely honorable and worthy uh, goal and project for any church to have. And there would be nothing supernatural about it.
0: Yeah, sometimes I think um, I can't speak. I'm just speaking my own observation. I find that a lot of people uh, go participate in religious life um, for the social aspect, for the lifeboat aspect in certain ways. Uh, and but the, um, the our supernatural history is kind of it's kind of the baggage we carry along with us. We're not sure exactly what to do with that.
1: Yeah, well, I know what I wouldn't want to do with it. I, I would want to make it clear. That there were some among us who, who took that seriously and let them carry on, but don't impose it on anybody. This is this is one of the things that we've uh, uh, that's come out, I think, very clearly in the work that Linda Lascola and I have done, is that uh, the pastors in our study who have have uh, moved away from the faith they had when they went to seminary, and they have congregations that don't suspect that their pastor's views are as different from their own. And the pastors really have, it's very hard for them to do anything about this because there is a rule, a sort of Hippocratic oath almost, that the pastor should never say from the pulpit anything that subverts the faith of any of the people in the congregation. That is, if it's if there are uh, older folks who are uh, very literal readers of the Bible, the, no jarringly skeptical elements should should be imposed on them. Uh, the trouble is that that uh, pastors then end up uh, acquiring a very delicate sense of uh, ambiguity where they can speak from the pulpit in such a way as to seem to be speaking literally about the truth of the Bible, when they, in fact, they expect a lot of the uh, people in the congregation to read it all as metaphorical, all as symbolic. And that it's this systematic hypocrisy, uh, diplomacy turned into, soured into hypocrisy that most concerns me.
0: My guest is uh, Dr. Daniel Dennett, the author of Breaking the Spell, *A uh, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon, and also the author of a paper with Linda Lascola in 2010 um, on preachers who are not believers. So you have been researching clergy who've had to deal with this uh, dual mind of being in the pulpit and yet not being able to say what they really think uh, for various reasons. And I'm wondering about these clergy a little bit. Do you see this group as... Uh, as a small, isolated group, or do you see them as a tip of an iceberg?
1: Well, it's interesting that they see themselves as the tip of the iceberg. They all are Mm -hmm. quite sure that they're not alone and that there's lots of others that are in the same predicament they're in. But uh, they don't know, and in fact they can't know, and we can't know. Um, uh, It reminds me very much of uh, the predicament of gays in the 50s without gaydar, they mm-hmm. no idea, they're pretty sure there are a lot of gay people out there, but they don't know how to get in touch with them, and they don't dare come out of the closet. They don't dare reveal to even their closest friends, maybe especially to their closest friends, uh, what their own state is. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, religious leaders of all religions and at all levels recognize that this is a large phenomenon among the many reactions, really hundreds of reactions, to the study that Linda and I did, our first pilot study, I can't recall a single one where a uh, you know a church official or a, a well-known theologian or or a religious leader said, uh, "Oh, this is a negligible problem. There's this. There can't be. They're making a mountain out of a the molehill. There can't be more than half a dozen or a few handfuls of." Uh, uh, clergy in this position. Nobody said that. And, and and that's because they don't believe it. They know, they know that there, there are going to be lots of people out there, lots of clergy, who, uh, with the best of motives and intentions all the way along, now find themselves having made so many promises and having declared so often from the pulpit various things that they no longer believe, they're in a position where they would really do a lot of harm to others, not only to themselves, by uh, uh, coming forward at this point and undercutting all that message.
0: You know, it's all part of the idea of bringing critical study into religion, and I, I would imagine that the threat of that is that it could be the end of religion if people actually think about these things critically. Although another angle might, be not, might not be the end, but it might be an important mend um, to be able to uh, bring the the good parts of religion and, and make it into something more humanistic
1: I think that's right it's, it's, it's either it 's either going to end or it 's going to mend and and probably be a bit of both and and my view is the religion that ends will be will deserve to end, and the religion that mends will deserve to to continue any religion that can thrive and some can in a world of more informational transparency and more reasonableness uh, deserves to thrive. We have lots of institutions that thrive quite well without any of the supernatural trappings. Uh, they still have, if you like, sacred values. They're just not uh, supported by by mythology. It's interesting. I was just talking with a colleague the other day about um, uh, a book uh, by Kwame Apia about uh, norms, and in which he tells about how foot binding, the, the practice in, in China of binding girls, baby girl's feet, been going on for over a thousand years, and uh, deeply embedded in the culture, and a lot of people thought, well, this will just, we'll never be able to uh, wipe out foot binding. Uh, it has essentially vanished and it took less than five years. It vanished because families just banded together and said, we will marry our daughters to each other, others' children. We don't need this foot-binding stuff to, to make daughters who are worthy of marriage. We'll just... Uh, will just forego the traditional uh, uh, value of having a daughter whose feet have been bound and by making that pact and making it public the whole thing, they managed to get the whole thing to evaporate in in almost no time. So who knows um, what can happen in the next 10, 20 years Uh, I've been saying that Religion changed more in the last hundred years than it did in the last thousand before that. And it's probably going to change in the next 10 years more than it changed in the last century. Why? Because of the internet, because of the mm-hmm. information, because it's as if they've been swimming in a murky sea and now suddenly the water's transparent. And religions did not evolve to thrive in a transparent medium. But it's a transparent medium now, and they're going to have to learn to live with it, or they're going to go extinct.
0: And that's the spell that uh, you're talking about in Breaking the Spell. The spell of religion, as I understand it, is the murkiness. Is that right?
1: It's it's the tradition of, of putting... Uh, a, a sort of a blanket of fog over the whole thing so that nobody looks too closely well i think once we dispel the fog uh, and look at look at religions in the bright light in the sunlight uh, we see that many features which just can't withstand scrutiny and they will they will simply evaporate if we do it right and i think they are evaporating i think every church has to deal with this now and what they're slowly beginning to realize, but it's painful to watch, is that there are really only two choices, complete openness and honesty and reason, or you're going to have to imprison your people. Uh, The same Mm -hmm. thing is true of dictators, of course. Assad is learning this... uh, Mubarak learned it it's you just can't prevent people from getting themselves informed these days unless you as i say unless you shackle them in prison and take away all their technological toys or uh, if you can't stomach that then you're going to have to get ready for a world of transparency
0: And it seems to me that I wonder with that, and sometimes in my darker moments, I wonder about the uh, kind of the the bullies of superstition who will, uh, uh, I mean, I I don't know if this is going to be quite, do you wonder if it's going to be smooth or do you think there'll be reactionary uh, elements to this?
1: I think there will definitely be reactionary elements. I think that's, I think in a way that's the main reason I wrote the book to try to get myself and others thinking about how to Recognize and try to fend off the uh, really toxic reactions. Uh, I think that patience is mainly what's called for. I think that uh, the last thing we want to do is create uh, martyrs to uh, uh, martyrs to fundamentalism or martyrs to superstition. Uh, uh, let the let the superstitions uh dissolve and evaporate in the sunlight without too much help from us just keep gently gently firmly keep the pressure of factual information out there and let let the religions deal with that this is the rationale for my proposal that there should be some compulsory education on the world's religions just the basic if you like, geographical and sociological facts about each religion. Uh, if if religious leaders knew that the children that they were uh, raising uh, were going to know a lot of these, you know, just Wikipedia-type facts about religions around the world, not their own religion, but other religions as well, just had their eyes opened to this great big, Wonderful teeming world of many views. Just recognizing that they were going to have to tailor their uh, their catechisms, their their educational policies, their methods to be effective with children that have that knowledge, and that in itself have a transforming effect. I think on every religion.
0: My guest, Daniel Dennett, author of *Breaking the Spell*, *Religion as a Natural Phenomenon*. Uh, he was just awarded the Erasmus Prize in 2012, an annual award uh, for the person who has made an exceptional contribution to European culture. And he's uh, also doing a study with clergy on preachers who are not believers. Uh, Dr. Dennett, we're just about out of time. Can you can you give us uh, uh, perhaps a, a final word on what you'd like people to see or know?
1: Um. Uh- I would like people to explore for themselves their own reactions to the claims, the hypothesis that they have been lulled by a uh, mythological message which is no longer playing uh, an important role in their lives, uh, except as a background. That is uh, uh, amusingly enough, I suppose. My, you could you could sum up my my uh, wish as not unlike the the uh, faith healer who says, "Throw away those crutches. You don't need those crutches anymore. Go ahead, watch. You can walk." Mm-hmm. And basically, I want to say to you, you'd be amazed. You can walk. You can you can walk morally without your without your crutches. Uh, try it. You'll like it.
0: A great liberating message. Dr. Dennett, thank you so much for being with me on Religion for Life.
1: Well, thanks, John, for all the good questions.
0: You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Come see us sometime. Uh, You can find uh, more information about upcoming shows. You can also find uh, my blog and uh, all kinds of uh, wild ideas at uh, religionforlife.com. Follow Religion for Life on Facebook, Twitter. And iTunes, you can also get podcasts uh, from religionforlife.com. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.